Welcome to another edition of Heartland History. I'm your host, John Lauk. Today we are coming to you from the heart of the University of Michigan campus, from Haven Hall, and we are talking to Professor Gregory Dowd, the Helen Hornbeck Tanner Collegiate Professor at the University of Michigan, where he teaches in the Department of American Culture. Welcome to the show, Greg. Thanks very much, John. Greg, I thought we'd start today by talking a little bit about your the collective output of all your years of research, which focus very heavily on the Ohio Valley and the Great Lakes. Because of uh, all this research and all your books on this area of the country, have you ever considered yourself a Midwestern historian? John, I really, I really haven't. Um, I confess in this uh, show that I, that I haven't considered myself a Midwestern historian. Um, I've probably spent as much time researching the South as the Midwest, um, nor have I considered myself a Southern historian. Uh, I have considered myself a historian of the East, which also isn't an area we really typically think of as a region of the United States. Um, I sometimes tell my students that um, I'm only bright east of the Mississippi River, um, and I'm only bright until about 1850, and, and beyond those coordinates, I, I get rather stupid. Um, but uh, so it would be east, um, but not, not really so much on New England either. Uh, I have tended to veer um, toward, toward the Midwest and toward the South in my well, let's talk a little bit about your first book, which is heavily focused on the Midwest. And uh, that book was published in 1992. The title is A Spirited Resistance, The North American Indian Struggle for Unity. Tell us why the Indian tribes in what we now call the Midwest had such trouble unifying against the British and later the Americans. That was the puzzle that I uh, set out to untangle when I started my research. I was um, under the impression that the main obstacle to unity, because we would assume that unity against uh, colonial expansion would be a, a good thing for the tribes, um, I was under the impression that the language barrier, that cultural barriers, that previous animosities stood in the way. And what I found was that those barriers actually were transcended by religious movements that arose among the Indians. Beginning really in uh, central Pennsylvania, but spreading rapidly over the Appalachians um, and spreading from, I think, from the uh, Ohio Valley down to the south um, was a religious movement. It has its origins in the 1740s, and it lasted really until the early 19th century. Um, and this religious movement involved um, such leaders as Pontiac and Tecumseh, famously, um, but it also involved uh, lesser known figures like Neolin, the Delaware prophet, or um, Tenskwatawa, the Shawnee prophet. Uh, and in the South, it involved uh, a host of uh, figures as well, uh, 
Phyllis Hajo, also known as Josiah Francis, for example. And it even influenced, I think, the Seminoles. So this, um, this, this religious movement was based on shared notions of how power was gained and lost, um, notions that were widely held uh, throughout Eastern North America. And um, that, so, so what surprised me really in the course of my research was the degree to which unity was a possibility. So the question remains, um, what inhibited a deeper unity than was actually achieved? And there what I found is it really was uh, factionalism within the Native American peoples. It was uh, a matter of intelligent disagreements over how best to deal with the question of British and later American colonial expansion. Uh, there were many uh, members of these peoples who thought that the best way to go, the only way to go, was to um, accommodate, that is to make room for uh, the Americans or the British, um, to work out arrangements with them that would enable um, the tribes to survive and to endure. I don't, I don't call these people sellouts. Um, I don't think they were collaborators. I think they were making um, reasonable decisions uh, in the face of, of this uh, enormous challenge. So, um, so within, say, the Shawnees, uh, Tecumseh was a Shawnee, you had fierce division. Indeed, a majority of Shawnees did not follow Tecumseh. A majority of Shawnees decided that Black Hoof um, had, a, had a, a better plan, and that plan was to uh, ally with the Americans um, and try to work out arrangements with them. So the, the question shifted from one of language barrier, one of old intertribal animosities, these are older interpretations, to one of um, the inter internal Native American politics. On this question of factionalism and divisions between Native groups, um, one thing that often gets overlooked, and I think Midwestern historians are guilty of this since they often begin their narratives about the time of the Northwest Territory or the French and Indian War. But one aspect of early Midwestern history, you could call it, is the Iroquois invasion of the Midwest or what would become the Midwest. And I noticed, and I know you've talked about this and written about this. Could you tell our listeners about that and how that led perhaps to future divisions within Native American groups? So we're referring to the 17th century, the, uh, uh, beginning in the, um, really the 1640s, when um, the, what was then the Five Nations, uh, Iroquois or Haudenosaunee people um, began to, um, began to have military conflict or extended military conflict with um, really peoples in the Ontario Peninsula as well as peoples in the um, in what's now say Ohio and even into as far as Illinois. Um, 
on the upper peninsula of Michigan. Um, actually, it's um, this is something I'm puzzling out right now in some of my research, um, and I'm I'm frankly increasingly skeptical that um, five thousand five nations warriors um, even armed with uh, good Dutch flintlocks um, could empty the Ohio country as uh, many of us historians have suggested they have um, our evidence for this is actually quite poor <laughs> um, and uh, it's largely uh, based on um, Jesuit writings. Um, there were not that many Jesuits out here. Um, the archeology span isn't that thorough. Um, so at the moment, um, it's funny you asked me to talk about this because at the moment, uh, one of my projects is, um, is to challenge the idea that there was a thorough um, dispossession of uh of um the uh indians from the ohio country from places like ohio and michigan i know that in my uh in in war under heaven i did follow some of the older scholarship and um i do make some allusion to uh the the these these conflicts but even as i was working then i was beginning to wonder is it was it really possible um and uh, and this is a question that's been nagging at me. So I think I think we're we're at the moment uncertain. There is a, a, a scholar at um, um, Iowa, um, uh, Stephen Warren, who has also raised some doubts about whether the uh, the Shawnee migrations out of Ohio, out of what is now Ohio. Um, were caused by Iroquois warriors alone. He um, as he argues, and I think pretty persuasively, that um, there there was also a great deal of conflict coming out of uh, the South. Um, there were slave raiders coming out of um, the Lower South uh, into places like Ohio, and that Shawnees rather deliberately moved out of Ohio or at least many moved out of Ohio in order to um, have better access to firearms. And it wasn't so much that they were, they were driven out by Iroquois. So I think at the moment we're this, this, this older idea that um, the Iroquois were able to um, empty the Ontario Peninsula and empty the Ohio country, it's, it's a little up for grabs at the moment. Let's talk a little bit about your next major book. Um, after a spirited resistance, I guess it was about 10 years later, you published the book you just mentioned, War Under Heaven, Pontiac, the Indian Nations, and the British Empire. And that was published uh, by Johns Hopkins University Press in 2002. How did you get from your first book, A Spirited Resistance, into a more specific study of Pontiac, which is a story very grounded in Michigan history. Yeah, and it certainly is. While I was working on um, a spirited resistance, um, I encountered and wrote 
about in small detail, uh, with little detail, uh, the Delaware prophet Neolin and um, Pontiac. I was interested in um, the relationship between um, the spiritual teachings of Neolin um, and the seemingly more pragmatic, uh, practical efforts of Pontiac. Pontiac sought military alliance with the French. Neolin taught um, a return to the ancient ways and a, um, uh, uh, a rejection of um, many uh, European ways. And so there was, there was some question about why is it that this um, practically minded Pontiac and this spiritually minded Neil and how could they how could they work together? And what I what I came to believe in the course of working on spirited resistance was that um, there isn't really this contradiction at all. That um, uh, just like other religiously minded people, um, it was possible to uh, praise God and to pass the ammunition. Um, that uh, American Indians were. Uh, uh, capable of rec reconciling their spiritual beliefs with the world um, because they lived in the world. And uh, Pontiac, it seemed to me, actually was a pretty um, uh, clear follower of the Delaware prophet um, and that his, um, his, uh, his spirituality was something he actually asserted even when speaking to, uh, say, French allies in Illinois or potential French allies. He was seeking French allies. He didn't get them. Um, in, the, in the course of that work, and this is a still spirited resistance, I, um, I thought, I began to really think seriously about the problem of rumor. And it surfaces in my book, War Under Heaven, and of course it surfaces even more in my uh, more recent book. But in War Under Heaven, I, uh, I considered this idea, this, this story that circulated among Native Americans in uh, what's now Michigan, but also uh, in Illinois, in Indiana, um, in Ohio, this idea that the French were coming back to North America. The French had just been driven out by the British. Um, uh, they hadn't been entirely driven out. Um, uh, when Pontiac's war broke out, there were still French officers in southern Illinois, but they were they knew that they were shortly going to have to leave. They were just waiting for the British to replace them. And there were also French still in uh, Louisiana. Um, they would soon be um, replaced by the Spanish. Um, but the Native Americans knew that the French had been driven out of Detroit, out of Michilimackinac, out of um, uh, Quebec and Montreal, and they were um, hoping to bring the French uh, back as, as allies. Um, and so there was this, this rumor that circulated uh, that the French indeed were um, Coming back, indeed, I published an article uh, which I titled "The French King Wakes Up in Detroit," uh, which was uh, sort of an example of the story: is that the French King has woken up; um, he's coming with armies to uh, to defeat.
defeat the British. So this was a hope. Um, it was a hope these uh, Indians had that they could persuade the French to return. It was um, both spiritual because they uh, had um, a certain uh, spiritual sensibility that if they if they practiced um, the right ways, if they um, celebrated the ceremonies correctly, um, they could gain sacred power and that uh, the sacred powers would help them accomplish what they wanted. But it wasn't anti-white. It was, uh, it was um, a movement that uh, could incorporate the French um, along with other forms of power. And so that, that really fascinated me um, in uh, War Under Heaven. But it also led me um, to think more and more seriously about, about rumor, um, which is uh, uh, what I pursued um, in my next book. Speaking of rumor in your next book, let's give a full uh, accounting of the title. Um, the title that you're speaking of is Groundless, Rumors, Legends, and Hoaxes on the Early American Frontier, also by Johns Hopkins University Press. Tell us about uh, your argument in this book. So over um, the course of my career um, as a historian of American Indians, from the time I was in graduate school when I uh, started working in this area, which was not so heavily worked on then as it is now, um, I was asked by uh, professors, and this is a question they should ask, what are your sources? What are going to be your sources if you're working on Native American history? Um, especially if you're working on the early period, uh, very few Native Americans left written records of their own. So the question really even surfaced at times, you know, can this history even be written if you don't have uh, sources written directly? This is a central problem. Of course, we answer it in all kinds of ways in our field. We, um, we talk about, well, we use sources written by Europeans, by British, by French, by Spanish. Um, missionaries, traders, um, military officers, travelers. We use these sources. We also read ethnography. We read archaeology. We try to triangulate from various perspectives to try to get a sense of what was actually happening. But the nagging fact remains that a lot of our evidence is hearsay evidence. And so that problem, um, it, it, it occurred to me that maybe there's a way I could turn that disadvantage, if you will, to advantage and make rumor the center of um, a history of the American East, which is what I tried to do in Groundless. Um, this is an effort to um, write a history of uh, Eastern North America of uh, the encounter of Native Americans with um, European Americans, with Europeans and later European Americans, putting rumor at the center. Um, by rumor, um, I mean a, a story that, um, or a piece of news 
um, for which the evidence is, is kind of uncertain. Um, it, it's an unverified uh, story that circulates in a population. It doesn't have to be oral. It can be written. Um, but it, 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 the source is unknown. That, and that's really why I use this term groundless. It, do, it doesn't have a good grounding. And, um, so the, um, the, the question of rumor in history is, is one, curiously, that's both very traditional among historians. Um, Thucydides wrote about it. Um, even before Thucydides, uh, you know, as far back as Hesiod, um, Virgil later, um, all took rumor seriously. Um, American historians, curiously, have not. There is a body of American historical literature that's pretty invested in something like rumor, and that, I mean, you'll recognize this immediately, John, when I say it, but uh, the interest in conspiracy um, from Hofstetter, uh, David Brian Davis, um, Bernard Balin, Gordon Wood, some of our greatest historians um, have written extensively about conspiracy. But few American historians have uh, actually dwelled on rumor. Instead, it's really in France, in um, people like Georges Lefebvre, um, uh, Mark Bloch uh, wrote about rumors, some great French historians who are well known to American historians. Um, and also uh, in, in uh, India, Africanists as well, but not so much in, in uh, the United States. And so, um, so that also was kind of an opportunity. I could try to uh, bring some of this, um, this, this work to our field. So um, it's, a, uh, it's a book that begins with uh, English rumoring about uh, Spanish activities in Eastern North America, including rumors about Spanish gold mining in the Appalachians, uh, which is a, a rumor that became a kind of a legend. Um, and uh, it, it goes on, I take this book into the, uh, into the 1840s, where I discuss um, some Michigan episodes in which uh, there were murders uh, committed within the state, um, and the murders were real, but um, it's the perpetrators who were um, rumored. In, in one case, they were rumored to be Indians, first Ottawa's and then Ojibwa's, and in the latter case, um, they were rumored to be um, this fascinating man, John Tanner, um, a white man, uh, captured in Kentucky as a child and raised among uh, Ottawa's and Ojibwa's um, in uh, the, <clears throat> over the course of the uh, 1790s and early uh, 19th century. Um, Tanner uh, was accused of murdering um, the brother of Henry Rose Schoolcraft, James Schoolcraft, James Schoolcraft of Sault Ste. Marie, um, and uh, Henry Rose Schoolcraft being probably, um, apart from Lewis uh, Henry Morgan, the best known 
ethnographer of American Indians in the uh, in the nineteenth century, also a uh, um, well, perhaps James Mooney as well, um, but uh, Henry Rolls Schoolcraft, definitely for the early 19th century, one of the most prominent American ethnographers. Uh, he was an Indian agent, uh, he was stationed at Sault Ste. Marie and at um, uh, Mackinac Island. Um, he also um, uh, participated heavily in, in treaties, in over 20 treaties he participated in. Um, he was a, a, a probably, I guess you'd say, a protege of Louis Cass, um, who spent a good deal of time out here as well. Um, so um, this murder of Schoolcraft's brother um, turned out to be a kind of a focal point for all kinds of rumors. First of all, it was rumored that it wasn't his brother, but it was Henry Rose Schoolcraft himself. Indeed, Henry Schoolcraft was handed in 1846 a newspaper account while he was in Washington, D.C., and the newspaper account reported Henry Rose Schoolcraft's own death. So he stood there reading this account of his own death. Um, read that he was shot in Sault Ste. Marie, shot by a, quote, half-breed, end quote, John Tanner. Well, Tanner wasn't of um, mixed ancestry, but so that even this very report was just filled with false news. It wasn't Henry Schoolcraft, it was his brother. Um, Tanner wasn't of uh, multiracial background, but he had spent a lot of time among Indians. So I'm very fascinated by the way in which even these kind of false reports can carry some truths. You're listening to Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. Today, we are talking to Gregory Dowd, a professor at the University of Michigan. In particular, we're talking about his new book, Groundless, about rumors and hoaxes in early American history. Greg, uh, you have talked in the past about a incident in the Muskingum Valley, um, a massacre of German Moravian settlers. Um, was this related to suspicions or rumors that caused a Pennsylvania militia unit to attack this group? Yeah, this is the um, Nodenhutten episode. Um, Nodenhutten and Salem. Um, these uh, um, Moravian Indians, United Brethren, um, they were Christians uh, who had been, uh, who worshipped uh, under the leadership of um, Moravians who were, uh, originally had been a German-based, although really by this time they were American-based, um, a pietistic group um, that was very evangelistic and, and uh, very much um, uh had uh, an impulse to, to missionize to um, all the peoples of the world. Um, there are many Moravian missions all over the world. In any case, the um, this this group of um, Moravian Indians who had been uh, who lived in the Muskingum Valley, as you said, in Ohio, um, they really uh, had a hard time during the American Revolution. Um, they tried to remain neutral. 
um, which was practically an impossible position to be in um, as uh, as warfare in the uh, upper Ohio became particularly brutal, I think it's fair to say, um, on all sides. Um, the um, British and uh, some of their allies, uh, Wyandots, I seem to recall, um, actually in uh, earlier in the war, um, sometime around 1780, 1781, um, actually uh, ordered these people toward Detroit. So they forced them to leave their uh, the Muskingum Valley uh, homes and, uh, and, and, and live uh, in the environs of Detroit. Um, as semi-captives. They had been uh, suspected of passing information to the um, American patriots. Uh, so they, they were sort of under the watchful eye of the British and the British uh, and the Native American allies of the British. But they were starving um, in the uh, late winter of, I think, yeah, 1782, so early 1782 and went back to the Muskingum Valley to recover some of their food, which they had stored. And in March um, 1782, uh, they encountered, I think it was March, they encountered a, um, an army uh, militia from Washington County, Pennsylvania, under the command, I believe, of, um, I think his name was David Williamson. In any case, they encountered an American militia from Washington County. And uh, that um, they surrendered their, you know, whatever arms they had. These were men, women, and children, um, close to 100 of them. I think the number 92. Um, and uh, they surrendered their uh, arms. And uh, the militia actually took a vote. Um, and the majority was in favor of killing them, and they did kill them. Um, serially bludgeoned them to death, according to our accounts, which are mainly accounts left by um, Moravian missionaries um, who were not present. Um, the, um, the, the cause of this, um, you know, is, is, is murky. Undoubtedly, it, it just has to do with uh, uh, intense racial hatred that evolved over the course of uh, the war, which was, as I say, particularly brutal. I mean, there were um, many killings on the frontier, uh, frontier settlers, many of them did lose their lives in, in attacks on homesteads. Um, but these were neutral, these were not enemies, these were, these were neutrals. Indeed, some of them had even passed information to the Americans, just as um, the British had suspected. Um, so it is a, it is a uh, relatively unknown event, um, but they were the the those militia who um, who did the killing. Those who would later try to justify it did so in terms of they believed that uh, that these um, people had been passing information to the British. Um, and had been abetting the British, and they also said on the basis of um, articles of, uh, you know, articles they found in, in their houses, uh, teacups and so on, that these uh, people had been raiding the American 
farmsteads. The, the more probable truth is that these people were fairly Europeanized in many ways. They sang German hymns, um, and uh, and they they uh, indeed were. I mean, the most horrible example of this, I think, is that uh, we understand that when they were killed, they were bludgeoned with a cooper's mallet. Um, uh, the very fact that they had a cooper's mallet in their possession is an indication that they made barrels and lived uh, semi-European you know, lifestyles. Um, so it is a uh, it is it is a remarkable atrocity. It, it, the way it features in Groundless is um, in Benjamin Franklin's um, reaction to this event, um, which is a very curious reaction. Franklin was um, at the time in now Franklin. I should say much earlier in his career um, in Pennsylvania in the 1760s. Um, had really uh, criticized uh, uh, settlers for a similar event, um, and that was the Paxton Massacre of um, late 1764. And Benjamin Franklin wrote um, uh, a piece attacking uh, the killers, these uh, European-American, uh, British-American killers of um, Indians at a, a town called... Uh, uh, Paxton. These were largely Conestoga Indians um, who had been killed. Um, very similar case where neutral Indians were killed in the midst of, of a uh, Native American war. In 1782, Franklin was in Paris negotiating the peace or attempting to negotiate a peace. And, he, and there was a really remarkable hoax. He printed, he had a printing press in his basement, and he printed, and he, he did his best to get the font right. Um, he's really expert. Um, he, he printed a phony supplement to the Boston Independent Chronicle. Um, he did it twice. Once it was a one-page broadsheet, and then he later did a two-page version. Um, and in this... Um, broadsheet, which was not a supplement to the Boston Independent Chronicle. It's, it's something Franklin did himself. This has been known to scholars for 160 years. Um, he, um, he wrote of a massive Native American atrocity. Um, this was uh, uh, the sending of over a thousand scalps in bales to British officers. So a minor uh, British officer sends um, on, the, um, on the part of the Seneca Indians, he sends over a thousand scalps. And these are carefully described in Franklin's hoax. Um, you know, some of the scalps are from continental soldiers killed in battle. Some are from uh, settler women uh, killed at night. Some are from infants ripped from their mother's wounds. It's it's a it's a gruesome gruesome hoax, and he prints this. And uh, of course, you know, I, I should add, the United States was still at war with Great Britain, so this this was an act of war. It was a, 
it was a massive lie, it was a massive hoax. Deception is a part of war. Um, and Franklin was skilled at deception. He um, circulated this um, broadsheet um, here and there in letters to people he knew in Europe. Um, and he would always distance himself from it. He says, this came across my desk. I don't know if it's true, but it's interesting. Um, so the episode at Nadenhutten takes place in March. And Franklin receives news of it from a variety of sources, including from a correspondent of his in Britain. The man's name was James Hutton, a Moravian himself. He maintained a correspondence with Benjamin Franklin throughout the war. And they had known each other earlier, and that's something we know when Franklin spent a great deal of time in Britain. And Hutton, of course, is, for one thing, he's a non-combatant. Um, he's a pacifist, essentially. Um, he's a Moravian. But he, um, he's outraged, of course, by this event. He sends a complaint to Franklin. And Franklin responded to the complaint, um, acknowledging that it was a terrible deed, that it was horrible, um, but reminding Hutton in Franklin's own terms that uh, really the person to blame is the king for being a man of blood and for starting the war and so on. And then he enclosed with the letter to Hutton, a copy of this Boston Independent Chronicle, as if to justify the Moravians' uh, own, the killing of these uh, Moravians by the American militia, which he didn't do in the letter. He didn't justify it in the letter. He, he does charge it. He says it's, this is, you know, an act of war. And Hutton responded outraged that Franklin would do this. Um, he didn't believe the, the document for a minute. Um, and uh, um, Hutton then uh, sort of gracefully turns to um, the fact that this is really the fault of war itself, Hutton being a pacifist. But it is uh, a fascinating response by Franklin um, to this, to this, uh, what may be, I mean, I don't know if one can measure these things, but let's just say it's safe to say that it's among the worst atrocities of the American. Greg, because of your expertise in Indian history, you have been asked over the years to serve as an expert witness in litigation involving American Indian tribes, in particular tribes in Michigan. Can you tell our audience a little bit about that experience and how you got involved? Well, I was asked to, um, to work for uh, some tribes, and uh, I, um, I did so... Um, uh, as uh, I, I wrote an expert report um, on, I don't know how many hundreds of pages I wrote, but it was many hundreds of pages on one sentence. And the sentence was um, uh, the 13th article of uh, an 1836 treaty. Um, and I think, if I recall correctly, the sentence went something like, the Indians stipulate for the right to hunt on the land ceded until the lands are required for settlement. A somewhat awkward sentence. 
And the question in the treaty was, um, or in the, the question in the litigation of the early part of uh, this millennium was, um, does this treaty right um, to, uh, well, what does it mean, first of all, um, and secondly, uh, does it still pertain? Um, and there have been, uh, there has been a lot of uh, litigation since the 1970s on hunting and fishing rights. Um, and interestingly enough, I mean, along with Washington State, um, along with the Pacific Northwest, I should say, I would, the Upper Great Lakes feature pretty thickly in this, um, in this legislation, um, or in this litigation, I'm sorry, in the litigation over um, the persistence of Native American treaty rights. And the courts have been pretty consistent that uh, treaty rights um, do not get erased um, uh, by time. Uh, they, they can only be erased by whatever the stipulation is. And um, in this case, the stipulation would be until the lands are required for settlement. And the question was, um, what does that mean? Um, in a state like Michigan, you have a lot of lands that it's really questionable whether they were ever settled. And that was the key question is, were the lands in Michigan settled? Were they not settled? Does required for settlement mean settled? So it was the, these kinds of questions. Um, what were the tribes involved in the case? So the tribes were uh, largely Ottawa and Ojibwa. Um, they were um, Little River, Grand Traverse, Little Traverse Bay, Sault Ste. Marie, and Bay Mills. Um, so that's uh, basically uh, the lands in question were most of the lands north of the Grand River in Michigan on the uh, sort of western side of the lower peninsula and then much of the eastern upper peninsula. This is the Treaty of 1836, which was negotiated by Henry Rowe Schoolcraft. Um, and, you know, typically for treaties, it was negotiated under some duress um, whether or not the uh, indigenous signers of the treaty were uh, the most representative of the peoples involved is a legitimate historical question. Um, they had been brought to Washington, D.C. Um, to, uh, to sign the treaty, and the treaty was signed in Washington. Um, it was then rejected by the Senate, or modified, I should say, by the Senate, um, and then it was the, the modifications were quickly re-affirmed um, by uh, the tribes um, later, later on, but very, very quickly. And so there's a whole series of questions as to whether this was done legitimately. But that wasn't really involved with the treaty, with, with the litigation itself. The litigation was strictly over the, um, over the meaning of the article. You mentioned earlier in our discussion, Greg, that when you first began working in the area of Indian history in the early 1980s, I presume, or late 1970s, that it was a small field, but it is now clearly a booming field and a very active area of scholarship, and I think there are new associations for uh, Indian history. How do you explain the rapid growth of the field over the last 30 years or so? That's really a good question. Um, yeah, it has, it has boomed. Um, so, I mean, part of it is just uh, maybe the way the profession works. Um, so when I 
became interested um, in it or when I began working in it. Well, I can explain my interest. My interest uh, uh, stems largely from um, a fairly simple, re you know, it's a simple matter. I had a great teacher. This is one of the one of the ways these things happen, and that's the most honest honest answer I had. I, when I was at the University of Connecticut, um, I had the great good fortune to uh, have as a lecturer um, in two of my courses, Karen Kupperman, who uh, was at the time a lecturer. Um, she later became an eminent professor. Um, uh, and she um, was kind enough, although I only realized later she didn't have to do this to direct my senior thesis. Um, uh, so that's how I got involved. Um, and But when I applied to, when I was a student at, uh, a graduate student at Princeton, um, I was really the only person I knew who was interested in this. And my advisor was very encouraging, but it wasn't his field. Um, John Murren was, was extremely encouraging. Um, he was an early Americanist, and uh, he uh, is an early Americanist, and he um, uh, uh, works uh, very widely on a range of matters, and uh, he encourages his students to do what they want to do. Um, and uh, But I, ha I was, um, you know, given cautious... Uh, I was I was cautioned against it, I should say, by some very well-meaning professors as well, who feared that this is a field for buffs, um, Western history isn't to be taken seriously, and they thought of this as Western history, um, that kind of thing. Uh, well, that, that has all changed. Um, uh, and I think I had the, the good luck to, um, to finish my degree, um, publish my first book, uh, it was published, my first book, in, uh, I think, 1992, um, which is just as the Columbian Quintacentennial happened. Um, because of the Columbian Quintacentennial, there was an interest in Native American material. My first book was reviewed in the New York Times. I don't think it would have happened otherwise. Um, and, uh, and so I, I had uh, just enormous... You know, it was serendipity, and, I had, and it was not planned. I had to, my book had nothing to do with Columbus, um, but nonetheless, this this uh, this sparked an interest in in Native Americans. Um, I think um, I wasn't alone. I mean, so there were there were people also who were coming out uh, just a few years before me. Um, James Merrill trained at uh, Johns Hopkins. Um, Richard White. Uh, came out with uh, the year before my book was published. It came out with *The Middle Ground*, which was a uh, uh, book that uh, altered the field. Um, uh, Dan Richter, Daniel Usner—I mean, a whole group of scholars, um, sort of just in the uh, few years ahead of me, around the same time, publishing around the same time, and we kind of all came out together. And uh, so, um, so there was this interest. Partly, I also think because for the just that weird serendipitous Colombian quintessentennial um, there was a sudden surge of interest and uh, so we got reasonably good positions um, in the field and began training students but the truth is uh, other other uh, students elsewhere um, were also coming out and I cannot quite explain why the surge of interest and partly it it might be that um, it seemed to be 
a gap that needed to be filled. That's certainly one of the reasons I went into it, um, was I, I couldn't quite understand how I could be a colonial American historian without studying the people who were colonized. Um, it just made sense to me that if there was a colony, there had to be colonized people. Um, and, uh, and so, so this was uh, part of what I struggled to do. You have been listening to Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host, John Lauk. Today we have been visiting with Gregory Dowd, professor at the University of Michigan, where he teaches in the Department of American Culture. We have been talking about Greg's new book, Groundless, Rumors, Legends, and Hoaxes on the Early American Frontier, published by Johns Hopkins University Press. Thank you for joining us today, Greg. John, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwest History Association, visit us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal, Middle West Review, or reading our online journal, Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.